Podcast, and here he is, the ever comical Derek McCaw. That's right. This is Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and welcome to another special edition of the Fanboy Planet Podcast. We say special edition because we got so many interviews from Comic Con, and quite honestly, so little time to transcribe them. And sometimes you just lose something in transcription. Oh, sure. Uh, it's the personality Accents. of a character, no matter how. Mispronunciation. In the case of one of our guests tonight, accent definitely is so charming. Um, I hope that's not patronizing to say because I admire that man's work so much. Anyway, uh, we are indeed talking tonight uh, with a lot of talent in comics. So, uh, but but before we do, I want to mention, of course, that you've probably picked us up uh, through iTunes. Perhaps, if you have, please subscribe, rate us, review us, tell your friends. You can do the same thing on the Stitcher app. You can also find us at www.fanboyplanet.com, where you can actually go to a page and listen to the podcast through the website. And while you're at the website. Our Comic-Con coverage, i got to say, I don't think that we have busted our butt as hard in years past as we have this year. And it's how many did you count today so far? I counted. And let's let's add your expense. At the time of this recording, your expense. I counted 46 last night, so 47 today. 47 uh, Art, di- different articles, articles coming Comic-Con. out of Comic-Con. Yeah. Um, and it's only growing because we've still got so many photo galleries to post up, and I'm going to do it. I mean, we've, we've got all these, and we, we've just got so much fun stuff and still things that are just kind of rattling around. Like I'm also adding, you know, hey, what comics? Because in these special editions, we haven't been able to play What's in the Bag. Next week, we should play a What's in the Bag of just things you picked up at Comic-Con mm-hmm. because often they're books that people just have no idea. Yeah. I had no idea about. Paying attention to the website also tells you to, if you've heard about something, especially in a comics-related episode, about uh, books that you find fascinating and you cannot find it at your local comic shop, or you're one of our listeners who doesn't have a local comic shop, and I know, sadly, there are such towns that have no comic shops. Um, And maybe worldwide. We just picked up, by the way, a, a, a fan on our Facebook page from Egypt. I love our reach. Anyway... I just wanted to acknowledge that because we are international. I love the fact that your arms are stretched out to the side when you to talk Egypt, about the reach. I beca- I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four movie. Indeed. Mm. Do you know that he has no of his own, no dish of his own at Denny's? Not even like st- stretchy. No. They had the Thing the thing Burger. Yes. The th- they had the Human Torch. Burnt toast. Uh, sk- sk- gr- uh, skillet. Skillet. So it's all okay. like peppers and onions. Okay. Uh, they have the Invisible Girl pancakes that are all fruits, and it's nice and, and, yeah. and, and slimming. And then there's the Fantastic Four Cheese Omelet. Yes. Which, then my daughter argued, that's Mr. Fantastic, but I said, it's, but it's the Fantastic Four Cheese. And then... Even Doom gets a dessert, the Doom Molten Lava Chocolate Cake. Yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah, he no, should have been like the, the melted cheese. No it, love for Miles Teller. Anyway. A quesadilla. Sorry, we'll see. Anyway, uh, so you can go to our Amazon link if you can't find these uh, any of these books locally uh, to you. Please support us through our Amazon link. We get, a, we get a very tiny little kickback. It helps support us. And if you like what you're listening to and you really do want to help support us, not only do we have 46 article, 47 articles and counting uh, – more by the time you're hearing uh, By the this. way, and there's 16 years worth of content on Fanboy Planet. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of stuff you can go back and find. Uh, but, uh, you know, it does cost a little bit for hosting. So please, there's also a PayPal link there on every page. You could certainly kick in. There are, there are more important issues in the world, but 
we we'd appreciate the love and the help. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, like could you shorten these introductions? Write into editor at fanboyplanet.com uh, and we'll answer. So tonight's episode, like I said, comics focused. A lot of interviews. The first one I have is I I picked this one up because I thought, you know, it's we talk a lot about diversity and inclusiveness on this and um, one thing that kind of gets overlooked, especially at a place like Comic-Con, is how many publishers that aren't comics publishers have gone into graphic novels. And right. Alfred Knopf is one of them. And, and uh, you may people may know Alfred Knopf a little bit better uh, as far as they usually show up at Comic-Con because Ernest Klein, Ready Player One, and the upcoming Armada, Armada. Uh, yeah. is there. And they had a, a video game there for Armada. Yep. And uh, Chuck Palahniuk is uh, is carried by Alfred Knopf. But I interviewed um, a, a a cartoonist, a New Yorker cartoonist. I mean, that's called, I, that's also a first. I think Comic Con had a lot of firsts this year. I don't think I've ever interviewed someone quite so intellectual as a as a New Yorker cartoonist. Um, so because I do hold that in a strange kind of reverence, and so that was kind of cool. Uh, Marisa Acachella Marchetto, who uh, had a has a graphic novel this summer out called Antenna. Um, so definitely a kind of a different thing. It's not the kind of thing we normally cover on Fanboy Planet. I did read it. It was kind of, it was really cool. She'd also written one um, a few years ago called Cancer Vixen about her uh, struggle, fight, successful, thankfully, fight with uh, breast cancer. And so someone who has embraced the form, even though she may not really didn't kind of grow up with it like some of us may have, she really embraced it. So uh, thanks to uh, Alfred Knopf for giving us this chance to talk to Marisa. We are here at the very first interview of Comic-Con 2015 for the Fanboy Planet podcast. I am here with Marisa Acutella Marchetto. Did I get it close? Marchetto. But you were close, I know. You know what, I'm going to leave that in. Yeah, yeah, Okay. Uh, (laughs) And it's not only my first interview of the con this year, but you are also... This is your first time at Comic-Con. I should say you are a New Yorker cartoonist with two uh, graphic novels, uh, Antenna, the latest one, and the critically acclaimed Cancer Vixen, which, unfortunately, I haven't read, but uh, I read a copy. So, okay, so this is your first time time here. This, I'm a, I'm a San Diego Comic-Con virgin. Oh, you've been at... I did New York Comic-Con, but this is my first time here. Okay. So I just like popped my cherry just now. Have there been di- differences in the culture already on Thursday morning? Oh my God! It's this place is wild. I you know what I love about it? There's such an explosion of creativity, and there's no judgment, and everybody is just letting it all hang out, doing whatever they want, and it's really really cool. I, that's what I love about Comic Con. Yeah. It's got such great energy, and it's such a great celebration of creativity. Art, comics, writing. It's really great to be here. And I'm inspired myself. Okay. Let us start with with Antenna, the book you're here with Knopf Doubleday promoting. Um, well, tell us about the book from your, from your perspective. Well, I've had this idea, Antenna, for about 20 years, and it took me literally eight years to write this book. She was a tween, she was a teen, and then she became this gossip columnist. And actually, it came out of, I was thinking about what you put out there in the universe, what you transmit, and karma, and the idea of antenna's hair transmitting. That's what it's, it's really about higher consciousness and uh, high fashion, but also about, it was actually informed by when I had breast cancer. I thought, which was the subject of Cancer Vixen, it made me realize that life is finite and what you do with your, your life is really important. And I thought, well, what if I had a character who was really inherently bad and actually dies and realizes that life is finite and she's got to figure her figure it out? Otherwise, it's not going to be. She's not going to have a good end once she really does meet the, her maker. So I have her meet her higher self, who's like this total. Which yeah. is an interesting narrative. Yeah, 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 the yeah. higher self and the, the higher self. Yeah, she comes face to face with her higher self, and she's so super disconnected from who she truly is. She doesn't even recognize her. Yeah, I mean that is, that is an interesting scene. I, I read that thinking. Um, 
almost like the projection, the higher self projecting into almost like a Christian science. Do you have a particular religious background that you're describing to or escaping from? I'm like kind of a little bit of both. I mean, I, I'm Catholic. I mean, I do believe in God and I believe in a higher power and I believe that we as people, I think our pipeline could be the direct contact. I don't so I, that's another thing that this book is about. It's about you channeling a higher power. And gossip. And, and gossip. And gossip. And it's like that choice and karma. And also, it's funny because she doesn't recognize who she really is. So she goes to the astral spot in space and she gets rid of the earth layer. And Johnny Versace does like a little makeover. So they have identical outfits. It's like a whole different spin on heaven. It's my version of heaven. It's like Johnny Versace and Coco Chanel are in my heaven. Sure. And I know a lot of and people spa for whom that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of friends that I want to recommend this book to. Uh, for this reason. But I find it interesting um, that it's being uh, marketed specifically as a novel, not as a graphic novel. So was that a choice on your part? Or do you feel like it's all merging... And it's literature. all merging. It's you know, it's really funny. I have friends who write books, and they're like, "Hey, we want this to be a graphic novel." I'm like, "Hey, but I want my book to be thought of as a novel." So it's like this crazy kind of like everybody. It's like you have curly hair, you want straight hair. It's like very strange this whole thing that's going on right now. Well, yeah, no, I, it is because I, and talking about history, what inspired you to go into a graphic novel, or if you just want to say a novel situation with this? You've been a cartoonist for many. For well, you know what, actually. This is my third graphic novel. I wrote Just Who the Hell Is She Anyway, twenty, literally 20 years ago. And that book, when it came out, nobody knew what a graphic novel was. They didn't know how to sell it. They didn't know what to do with it. They're like, like Dr. Seuss? I'm like, well, I was referencing Mouse. They're like, oh, okay, I swear to get it. So it's like interesting how the landscape has totally changed, and now graphic novels are so hot. Before, they were like, nobody knew what, you, what they were. Well, I just read somebody complaining, historically, why Stan Lee, who's really Stan Lee Lieber, didn't use that name. He wanted to, that was for what he was going to be a serious writer. Mm, oh, Stan really? Stan Lieber would be it. And Stan Lee was for writing comic books because it was looked down upon, and now no one knows Lieber. They, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's right. Stan Lee, and so yeah, you have seen this this shift. So, it's, so it's like the seismic shift. That's like it's like a whole different universe now. It's exploding. And has your approach to doing it to your creative process, I guess, for a novel? changed over this time is it's getting more acceptance getting more attention and why fashion because you know what I grew up with fashion my mother was a shoe designer that's how I started drawing she was at home drawing shoes and she would draw on these she would have these plastic lasts and she would put her designs on them in the shape of a shoe and like do these drawings of shoes and that's the first thing I started drawing and then she would do these trend reports with women wearing the wearing her shoes and that's when I started drawing so that makes sense and she also was this amazing she just she designed shoes for Jackie Kennedy when she was first lady seriously okay you got a good pedigree there I do have a good pedigree <laughs> and you are going to be appearing on a panel here at Comic Con yep. by the time this podcast gets out you've already been on there so we won't access your higher power how'd that panel go no uh, the panel yeah, is that was awesome the, I loved every minute of it the panel is graphic novels and no the panel is science fiction. science fiction and sex it's like way to bury the lead Comic Con uh, well that's purpose they do want to be family friendly do you, when that when that panel was suggested did you, did you hear is there any pushback no I thought it was awesome okay so and, and do you feel who else is on the panel with you Oh, there's a great group of people on the panel. Um, there's Wesley Chu, who's on the panel, and um, Mary Elizabeth Hart. Is Mary Elizabeth Hart. Yeah, and I can't wait to meet her. She sounds amazing. Um, there's a really great group of people. There's. Thank you. I know it's been changing. Um, okay, so that's who it is for right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It always does change. That's it's, just the, <laughs> the way it is. <laughs> I keep seeing names shifting, but I'm look I'm looking forward to it. Oh, good. 
I hope that, it, that it's a great time for you. And once again, the novel, the newest novel is Antenna, for those listening, A-N-N-T-E-N-N-A, as two words, the name of the character. Uh, previous graphic novel, gra- uh, Cancer Vixen, and the first one, which Just I Just who the hell is she anyway? That's still in print, right? Yep. Okay. And available, uh, at least these, the first two from Knopf Doubleday. We thank you for having us over here to talk with you. Thank, thank you so you. This much. This was really a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. That was a fun conversation, and uh, like I said, kind of, kind of, kind of cool to see people that have never attended a comic con, at least on the West Coast. I had a lot of people telling me, you know, you really got to come out to New York Comic Con and see what that's like. Well, maybe if people donate to PayPal. Anyway, <laughs> if there's enough, it's sort of like that Spider-Man attempt a few years ago to send me to fanboy uh, to to see Spider-Man, Spider-Man turn off the dark. It didn't happen. Did that ever open in Vegas? I uh, did. And I don't think it's story. <laughs> Dang it! I didn't even notice it opened, and now it'll never happen. I'm pretty sure it did. Uh, I got to read that book. The Song I think of Spider- you got enough money, you could probably have gotten popcorn and a soft drink, and maybe. And maybe uh, that's about actually it. maybe a taxi there. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, and so uh, this next interview I'd like to throw in uh, was uh, through IDW, um, and one that is sort of like a reference to our. Oh, Scott and I talk about this. The Lost episode. Rick and I sat down with Scott Tipton, who is the writer of uh, Star Trek Planet of the Apes, the primate directive. We sat down with him at Gallifrey One. Yeah. But we fell into some sort of time-space displacement issue. I, I don't know. I uh, forgot to push the button. Uh, just, uh, I was trying to be nice about it. All right. So, yeah. Rick forgot to put it. This happens. Um, it was so distracted. We were outside. There were all kinds of weird there was like a vehicle next to us, and that's hot. It was called a car. No, like, it was a strange. You were expecting a TARDIS, and it just so wasn't strange. there. Anyway, yeah. uh, so we did have a really nice long conversation with Scott Tipton at Gallifrey One, and then we didn't get, and then it was not recorded, which we didn't discover until we returned back to San Jose. So promised Scott that at the earliest possible opportunity, when we could sit down face to face, we would repeat. Well, we couldn't repeat it because we were having too good a time, and that's what happens. You forget what you actually said. And things have moved on. The Primate Directive is coming out in hardcover, uh, and he's moved on to an adaptation from IDW of a novel that I suspect Rick holds in high regard. I know I do. The 7% Solution. So Scott Tipton talking about uh, the Primate Directive and the 7% Solution. We are here at Comic-Con recreating uh, for something that people don't even know existed, the lost interview with Scott Tipton. Uh, so we're pretending that we're at the Marriott in by the LAX. Uh, people are smoking around us. No, actually, we're sitting at the IDW booth because I want to thank uh, Scott Dunbeer for kicking his own children out in order to allow us to have a conversation. So, good afternoon, Scott. Good to see you again. <laughs> Scott Tipton, uh, we uh, will talk about uh, what we were talking about at, at Gallifrey, which was, of course, Star Trek uh, slash Planet of the Apes, the Primate, the primate Directive. Directive. Yes, my favorite uh, title ever. <laughs> and you've got the hardcover collection but of this. Suffer, but but it's oh. the trade. All right. No hardcover? Yes. Well, well, I would put that. I would put that on my shelf in hardcover. All right. So the softcover, the trade collection is coming out next month. That yes. would be August for the people who are listening. August 2015. Yeah. Who knows what people are listening. Uh, and uh, this was uh, like a dream project. Pretty much. You didn't even know you had that dream. Yeah. I, it was like exactly it. It's one of those things where as a kid of the 70s growing up on, on sci-fi TV and movies, you know, Star Trek and Planet of the Apes were like my two benchmarks. It was like Star Trek every day. And Planet of the Apes every summer, Channel 2 would play all five movies. It'd be an ape week. And I watched those movies at an at age far too young than I should have been because they're kind of scarring for G-rated movies. It was a different time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting shit? And, uh, yeah, so what was the biggest... Um, I say, I, if I recall correctly, you got a lot of cooperation from the Charlton Heston this, estate. That was the, the biggest thing about it, is that the Heston estate has never allowed his likeness to be used in comics before. So this is the first time we actually got to use the character of Taylor in licensed comics. So that means we could have the dream fight, the dream match of Captain Kirk and Commander George Taylor. Like, two of the most obstinate, stubborn men to ever command spaceships. With very unique fighting styles. Oh, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, that, that, was, that was interesting. So you, and they were great to work with. The Heston State, I mean, luckily, they liked what we wanted to do with it. They liked our plot and the plans we had. And they had really good notes along the way. They were they they were just a dream to work with. As I mean, everybody involved. Sometimes when you have these big multi-company, multi-licensor crossovers, you, you never know what's going to happen. But both Fox and CBS, I mean, CBS has been good to me forever. They're great to work with. Yeah, because Fox, this is not your first Star Trek. Yeah, we've been doing Star Trek forever. And Fox was great as well. And both our editor, Sarah Gatos, and Daphne Plieb and Ed Bloom, just everyone came together great, along with the good folks at the Heston Estate. Couldn't have gone easier. I was, it was a, a fantastic project. And just getting to, to kind of be the first debut book for our artist, Rachel Stott, who has since gone on to kind of like really uh, get some attention on our book, and now she's going both on Doctor Who and on some other Star Trek. It's great to be the, kind of like the first one to kind of introduce Rachel's work to everybody. And it was very good with Rachel's likeness. Rachel's fantastic, yeah. Uh, very bright, which I think was, was interesting for, uh, you know, I guess my thing is watching Planet of the Apes, and even Star Trek to some extent. You see them in kind of more muted colors because they're older shows. Yeah. And, so forth, and this book was so brightly colored. Yeah. And how, that much, was, how much influence and choice do you have on things like that? I mean, well, well, a lot of it is just finding people that, that you trust or judgment. I mean, the coloring was Charlie Kirkhoff, who we'd worked with on Doctor Who, Prisoner of the Time. And Charlie, Charlie's great. I mean, he, we would get the pages back and they would just pop. And we just trusted him to, to kind of like read our script and take a look at what Rachel was doing and kind of give it the right mood. All right. And now to get intellectual uh, for a moment, if we can, even when we talk about Planet of the Apes and Star Trek... Um, it occurred to me, and I'm glad we get to circle back around to this for that lost interview that no one will ever hear. It's sort of it's in Morpheus's library somewhere, uh, recorded. That uh, you know, Heston was very much just like this trilogy to me of, of Heston movies. This uh, you know, Planet of the Apes, uh, Omega Man, and uh, I would say Make Room, Make Room, and it's not. Yeah, it's uh, so green. green. Um, that. Uh, he was very much into the theories of Robert Ardrey about man's humanity. You know, yeah. a, a much darker vision yeah, it was, uh, of what... So did you research any of those, go back to those anthropological readings that he seemed to have been very, very obsessed by? Not not so much. I mean, I'm a big fan of like the, well, we always call it the, the Charlton Heston dystopia trilogy. Yeah. You know, I love those three movies. But our take on this much more was taking the philosophies of the apes movies and the philosophies of the Trek universe and bang them together and seeing where they don't work out so well. Because Star Trek is so inherently optimistic, and nothing is more pessimistic than the original Final Days movies, especially the first two. And even in number three, as we had uh, Dana Gould come in to do, uh, to do essays, as Dana Gould points out, in number three, they kill a baby at the end. <laughs> it's, so, it's so horrifying. <laughs> I'm with you. I watch those at a young age going... That's an odd. Yeah, and I mean, and, and number two is dark enough where they blow up the planet. How can we bum you out more? Let's kill a baby. <laughs> it's so grim. And so to, to take those two, and by again, that was uh, rated G at the time. Rated G, they yeah. were rated G. And, uh, and to take those two philosophies that couldn't be more at odds and find a way to make them work together—that was our real challenge. And um, a lot of the credit goes to my co-writer, my brother David, who uh, who really is as big a fan of both these franchises as I am. And he was kind of instrumental in coming up with ways to make the philosophies uh, work against each other. Yeah. And it worked. That was a really fun book. The Primate Direct coming out in August. But next, and it was like a week after we talked to Gallifrey, or no, I guess it was WonderCon was where the announcement came. Yeah. That you're adapting also one of my favorite novels from my childhood, The 7% Solution. Yes. Sherlock Holmes, Sigmund Freud. Yeah. Written by the great Nicholas Meyer. The book that taught me how to pronounce Sigmund Freud's name, because I never heard it spoken aloud until I actually said, I'm reading a book about Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud, and a disapproving older adult. Well, they were all older than I was a child. I said, Freud. So that's where I learned my pretentious tone, if anybody ever wanted to know, from Sunnyvale Community Players. So anyway, there you are taking a classic novel by, again, a guy who also is a classic Trek figure. I mean, a big hero of mine, not just for Trek, but also for stuff like Time After Time. Again, one of the first movies I ever saw that I that really made me think about the, how movies are made. That you know, somebody had to like construct the story. It, it had a big influence in the way I think about storytelling. And the chance, getting a chance to work with him has been just 
fantastic, and he's he's really involved in this. He's uh, as as my brother and I adapt the scripts. He looks over everything, suggests changes, uh, does a little rewriting here and there, polishing to like because uh, Nicholas Meyer is very concerned about always, and you can tell from his films about pacing. So he he wants to make sure things are going at a good pace, and so he's it's great working with him and kind of taking nods from him and seeing the things he thinks are more important and things we can ease up on. And that's interesting about pacing because. Now, I haven't seen Time After Time for a long time, but I've been re-watching Wrath of Khan and thinking, sometimes I go back and watch movies from that era, and they feel so much more leisurely. Yeah, and not Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan is still a little slower than it would be if it were made today. Now, but Oh, I'm sorry, as it was made today as Into Darkness, but uh, but better is Wrath of Khan. Uh, it's still much faster than yeah. what else was going on. Um, how does it feel... A work with the Heston estate, but this is not the same thing as having Charlton Heston say, "Right, this is not the way I yeah. would have done it." And, but you actually have Nicholas Meyer, a guy who's kind of, without knowing it, taught you a lot yeah. about storytelling, and now you well, are. Well, luckily, we've had some experience with this. Our, the last project before this was City on the Edge Forever with Harlan yeah, Ellison. Well, if so, you survived Harlan, you survived anything. <laughs> and so, I mean, <laughs> the, the fact that we've been able, we've worked with both Harlan and Nicholas in the last like three years. And got a chance to kind of get an, an up close sort of master class in storytelling from two of the guys that we think are some of the greatest. I mean, and still get, get to turn out some some work we're really proud of. It doesn't get any better than that. Right. And so we are now at this point where we can say, "Has Star Trek Planet Games?" You're not working on Star Trek Greenland. No, that's that's in the hands of of the good Mike Johnson, who is all over that. Oh, and, I'm very excited about that yeah. concept as well. Um, what dream project? Would you throw out to the universe and hope would come would land in your in your lap? I can't say because I'll jinx it. <laughs> I, I never want to curse myself. Or let's put it this way: What dream project would you absolutely not? What nightmare project would you? Not, <laughs> what mashup would not work? And that's the one that's coming your way. Yeah, yes. I mean, my my thing on these crossovers is always that you know, you just have to find a way to make the two make sense in each other's universe. That was our biggest thing with Star Trek Apes: is that if you came into that story and didn't know anything about Star Trek. You love Planet of the Apes, and it felt like the Apes to you. Then you're, we're doing okay, and the same reverse. It, yeah, I have to be able to kind of honor both masters, and I think a big part of that is you need somebody who is kind of like equally not in love with, but adherent to both licenses, and like both. You know, you, you, you can't bring somebody in who loves Star Trek and has never watched Planet of the Apes and have them write that book. And I think that goes for any crossover. Now, I, I, I know I was we just ran each other in an art gallery here. Um, and I've seen some of your posts of, of your toy collection. You are, you have the cred as a magnificent geek yourself. Oh, oh yeah. And, yeah and, you know, there's no question. <laughs> I don't bother hiding it anymore. Set, what, there was a time you hit it? <laughs> well, before social media, no one knew. Oh, okay. But as, you know, in terms of mashups, uh, I, and since you've worked on Doctor Who, are you excited setting aside money now for the Lego Dimensions game just to be able to have Doctor Who... Uh, well, Daleks fighting Batman and uh, Scooby-Doo against the Cyberman. I mean, uh, just in, t- uh, in terms of, like, the, the playability already, because I was already a big Disney Infinity fan with the whole bit where you buy the figures put on there. But the fact that Lego is so blending all these lights together, oh, it's it's all over for me. It is I'm so a, many I'm going to just hand over my credit card now and say, just, just send it when it's ready. There goes my bonus. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I agree with you there. So, uh, yeah, well, well, here's the gig. What has been your big get from Comic-Con? Because every year there's always that one thing you want, you hoped, or just the thing you discovered and went, fantastic, I've got this, this goes on my wall. Well, the two things that came in going in I had to get. I had to get the, because I, anyone who has seen my social media knows that I'm the world's biggest Ant-Man fan. Is I did get the giant Ant Man box set from Hasbro I with the Doctor Pym and I the Goliath. So that I, I passed that one up. That yeah. one and also the Doctor Strange book as well because it has Dormammu, and I'm I'm a huge Ditko fan. Well, that's interesting. You say Dormammu, 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 Dormammu. Do you know that for sure? Until someone tells me otherwise, <laughs> it's Dormammu. <laughs> okay, so that's it's like Sigmund Freud. Until no, some, no, until someone I, corrects you. I am ashamed by that. I thought. I, I, another one I heard out loud. Let, let, let's experiment with some, some words. I may started this as a new interview uh, process. Uh, imprimatur. Yes. Imprimatur? Imprimatur, actually. Imprimatur. Imprimatur, yes. I was going to say, uh, my pro- uh, Rick and I have been going through this series of 
words we've never heard out loud. And we're like almost, fi- you know, we're in our 40s and 50s and realize we've been decades on this earth and no one's ever said these pretentious words we use all the time in our heads. So, that's <laughs> great. Okay. Imprimatur. Yeah. And Dormammu. 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 But anyway, so that was, that, that, that was the thing I was planning to get. Those were the things I knew I wanted. And you got them. Got those. But then I stumbled across a Micronauts battle cruiser and a Micronauts mobile exploration lab, both in the box. That's so I'm like, well, okay. these, these are coming. Dare I ask how much that? No, a really reasonable price. I got them both for like 120 bucks. That's amazing. Now, um, by, by the way, we're sitting here at IDW, and I have not talked to anybody else, but I saw the same thing. They're reviving Micronauts. Yes, they are. ROM. Yes, they are. What can you tell me? I can tell you there's a long line of people knocking on the door who love ROM and Micronauts. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, who's the creative team, do you know? I have no idea what the plans are yet. I mean, everyone everyone loves those books. If I gave Scott Dunbeer $1,000, could I, could I <laughs> like, write a short story of Darren Carzer or something? <laughs> I think you have to get in line. I, I know, but that's the thing. I, I, I wrote Greatest American Hero. Come on. Yeah. I yeah. Got <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm so excited by that. Oh, yeah, you know. that, that was a very fun. That honestly. was my only exclusive last year. Was about that silly little rum. Yeah, uh, Hasbro because I I don't I'm not into that line, but that's the thing on my desk. Going, yeah. yeah, that's that, that's actually the only one of those I bought too. Was the rum. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, Scott, thank you. I'm glad we could finally get together and do this. This and I triple checking. This is actually recording, so this is happening. My pleasure. Man. All right. Thanks. We'll talk later. Bye bye. Cool. That's one of my favorite books. Absolutely, yeah, and Nicholas uh, Meyer, and, and clearly one of his as well. And one of the things I want and to say—it's actually part of a series. Yes, uh, I, I, the Canary Trainer. I know I read them all, but yeah. it was all in junior high. Um, and I want to thank Scott an extra tip of the hat because he gave me a trivia question for the Pro Fan Trivia Match, and I realized that I should be reaching out to the guy who runs Comics One Hundred and One because he's a Zorlak in his own right as well, and we definitely. Uh, definitely run in in similar circles and so i i realized when i host next year i'm going to be asking earlier to to a brain trust uh of people like, like scott hey what about this question so anyway thank you scott and and for forgiving us for the the lost interview and creating one that was just as much fun this time around at the IDW booth. And thank you, IDW, for letting us take the signing table and kicking children out. So, um, <laughs> Always a plus. <laughs> we are recording these interstitials before Rick has actually heard the interviews, so I like throwing things like that in. And then the train went through. No, uh, so anyway, the next we've got a round from Dark Horse. And so uh, up front, I want to thank, again, these people get uh, unsung. Ob Driver, uh, who is the publicity guy at Dark Horse, and he reminded me this year that uh, there are some local uh, talents that we should be having on the podcast when we do live shows and stuff. And I thought, why don't I have a connection? And he said, uh, duh, why don't you call me? And I went, ooh. So, uh, <laughs> Ob, thank you uh, for this uh, for this group of, of talent. And more that will be coming in in podcasts in the months ahead so uh first off uh james farr who is a writer on the graphic novel uh rexodus which just came out from dark horse a couple of weeks ago um which uh, they had a giant tyrannic uh, they had a guy in the f- uh, they had the tyrannosaurus rex there on the floor yes there's a lot of excitement about that uh and so james really nice guy had not met him before really fun conversation and a couple times afterwards at con kind of ran into him and said hey how's it going you know so really nice guy and a really fun family graphic novel which is not necessarily what dark horse is known for so kind of a risk for them but i think one that was well worth it and so uh if you have not already checked it out check out Rexodus, and so here's our conversation with James Farr. Far, go here at Comic Con with James Farr, the writer, right? Of yes, yes. Rexodus, yes. Dark Horse Entertainment's uh, new comic book, uh, the graphic novel, I guess. Uh, yes, because that, it was interesting. Though I felt it was somewhat episodic, and I've been warned it was going to be a, a regular monthly. Yeah. Why did it show up as a full-on graphic novel first? <laughs> I, or was those, that your choice? Those decisions are way over my pay grade, but uh, yeah, I, I'm. You get paid. <laughs> okay, <you know. laughs> amazingly, yeah, you get paid <laughs> no, to do this stuff. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm not exactly sure, but I'm. I'm so happy that uh, they did. Um, 
it's it's been a long road to kind of get here and we've been working with dark horse for a really long time and we're just so so excited that we finally were able to have such a, a great launch a successful launch and that everybody seems to be so excited with the book yeah so um, it is one of those fantastically classic concepts that don't seem to be done often enough sure and yet you say it and everybody goes oh you know I dinosaurs on a spaceship with lasers yeah. how did you get involved in Rexodus uh, well the co-creators Eric Lee and Paul Wisikowski uh, who are good friends of mine uh, brought me on board uh, based on some previous experience that I'd had uh, writing other comic books and wanted uh, to see if maybe I could elevate the concept a bit um, into something that uh, kids and teenagers and adults would all uh, you know be into and something that we could set up for a dark horse um, uh, to publish at some point so um uh, I came on, took their core idea, kind of took it apart, put it back together, kept what really worked, discarded what didn't work as well, and uh, what we wound up with was just something awesome and colorful, and and everybody seems to be excited about it, so we're super happy. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to, you know, I don't want to make light of that concept of the dinosaurs on space with lasers, because I found, one, some fascinating, some really great funny dialogue, but also a few, as, as a father of children, what else would it be a father sure, of? Sure. Some really strong father, son, and the oh. legacy themes going on. And, Thank and, you. Uh, the, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the of the patriarch way back when. The Kelvin is, is our Kel- hero, and then Kavark is his father. Kavark. Yes. Kavark, Kavark yes. has some, fa- some fantastic, just quick soundbite things to say about being a dad. Oh, man, that yeah. I just, like, was, uh, so... Oh, thank you. So, you know, what's like they're bouncing that and getting that depth in there, which could have easily been just like, ah, this is a fun... Sure, sure. Well, I, I'm a father as well. Um, Paul and Eric, both co-creators, are also fathers, and um, it felt like if we're going to... We had to introduce humans into this idea. In the original idea, there were no humans. Um, so to kind of give the dinosaurs themselves a sense of scale and scope uh, and to allow us to discover them through, you know, uh, a kind of a window character, we included humans. And uh, uh, that... Sorry, what was the question? Well, getting in there, but it's, oh. it's, like, it, it's what appears to be a kid's book. It appears to be a kid's and, book, and there's but there's some, some, there's some really sure. great poignancy Sorry, to man. it. And that's all right. Yeah, no... Uh, we definitely wanted to include an emotional hook that people could identify with. And um, as fathers ourselves, that seemed like a really strong um, kind of window into that universe. It's something that our lead dinosaur character and also our lead human character can share in common that brings them closer together, uh, a love for and unfortunately a tragic loss of their father throughout the book. Um, So that gave us a way to kind of bring two characters together emotionally that otherwise maybe would have never, you know, it might not have worked as well. So um, it was a way for us to just give some real gravitas and genuine emotion uh, to the book um, in a story that could have easily just gone off the rails and, and, and been overly silly or... And it is a story that could go in a lot of directions, sure. which is, and so I'd say which part of the world building was your favorite because you've got yeah. Earth and this long ago tragedy, this, yes. and this villain, you've got spacefaring adventure, and you have a really interesting politically religious oh, yeah, thing sure. for the dinosaurs sure. going on, or they don't call themselves their dinosaurs. Uh, Dasaurians. Dasaurians. Yeah, yeah figure out what they would call themselves. Just, yeah, yeah it's, it is convenient they speak English. Thank heavens, that made it so much easier. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a lot about but that. But I love that guy. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate if that. turtles can speak English, so can d- There may be some ancient uh, tie in there, but I, we'll have to wait for the sequel to figure out why. <laughs> okay, but, <laughs> why but back is. to it. Well, you sure. know, I, 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 there's something a little satirical about religion, I, Sure. About uh, not religion, but of that society of sure. kind of theolog- theocratic society. Um, so, what was your f- favorite direction to go with that? Oh man! Uh, well, I definitely knew that I wanted to include that element um, as a way of you know giving some a sense of real danger that could come out of this dinosaur society um, that in a lot of ways is more technologically advanced than we are, but in other ways kind of represents where we were several hundred years ago. Um, So kind of seeing that uh, the danger kind of come out of that place seemed really organic. Um, and uh, we kind of thought amongst ourselves that the the particular dinosaur that we used for the villain um, 
kind of looked a lot like the Pope <laughs> and had a big crest on his head. Fair enough. And uh, so ideas come from all sorts of places, <laughs> you might say. All right. And, and where do you hope it, it goes next? So you've had this graphic novel out for three weeks, I think? Yeah, it? yeah. It, it just hit everywhere in Barnes & Noble a couple days ago and oh, whatnot. Okay. So um, I, I certainly wanted to do my best to set up the universe so that it, you know, it could easily be adapted to anything. So it could go to animation, it could go to more comic books, it could go to film, um, and, and it would feel organic, uh, you know, uh, going through that process. So um, I, I don't know if we're going to do a next one. I really hope we do. The book seems to be performing really well, so... Do you know where you want to go with the next one? Do you have it in plan? Uh, mammoths. That's that's, mammoths? that's what's happening next, if I'm allowed to say that. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But you, you, what, you I mean, first and, I, uh, I don't we'll know. Say, so, uh, <laughs> what could be cooler than a dinosaur fighting a mammoth? I'm not sure. But that's what we're going to do. You got it then. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks for the time, James. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to talk to you, too. And we thank James for that. Uh, and again, Rexodus. Fun. Dinosaurs on spaceships with lasers. Fighting religious extremists. You can't you can't get better than that for children's You're literature. You're making that up. I might not be. I mean, that's what's great about that concept. It can go so many different places. Um, and uh, next up, uh, this was actually, this was really cool because I, I've been following along and the guy who writes the one comic that my daughter will still admit to reading, which is, and that's not an insult on comics, it's just she's 16, let's move on, but she always makes sure she reads it, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Season 10, Christos Gage uh, sat down with us as well, uh, and I had forgotten, of course, he also wrote uh, an episode of Marvel's Daredevil. On Netflix, so with his with his wife Ruth, and they've got some graphic novels, uh, which they uh, which Christos does does mention in the interview. So, without any further ado, Christos Gage. Once again, we are here at Comic Con with Christos Gage, uh, who is the writer of. Now we're on season ten. Season ten of Buffy and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer from Dark Horse Comics. So, thank you for sitting down and. Let's talk there. Um, sort of, for people that maybe have not been familiar with the book or the process, because I realize by, by the time you're in season 10 right. of something like this, these kinds of questions have been asked, is like, how much oversight to, to, and, or limitation or freedom do you have from Joss Whedon as you go forward with, with this season? Oh, well, obviously, uh, when, as people who... who Follow, you know, as, as people, I'm, I'm going to assume people don't necessarily know anything. So, pardon me if I recap stuff we already no, that's good. Have, have, is familiar to you. But uh, Buffy ran seven seasons on TV, and then Joss Whedon continued the story in comics, writing many of them himself in season eight. Uh, and then season nine, he wrote the first issue, and then handed it off to Andrew Chambliss, who he worked with on Dollhouse. And then season ten is the one I started writing. Um, but at the beginning of each season. We have a summit with Joss and the writers and often writers from the show. Jane Espenson has always been there and Drew Greenberg. And we, we work out the spine of the season together so that the larger arc is something that is worked out with Joss, with people who were involved with the show. So it's very much to keep it in, in the spirit of the show. And then all the outlines and scripts that I do are sent to him. Uh, and so he is able to weigh in if there's something he thinks isn't working out the way he thought it would or he has a different idea. Um, you know, for example, like in Angel and Faith, which I wrote last year, there was some talk, talk and spoiler alert here if you stop listening if you don't want to get spoiled. But, <laughs> uh, you know, Giles was killed and came back to life uh, at the end of season, Angel and Faith season nine. And there was some we, we didn't figure out until the very end how he would come back to life. We knew we didn't want him to just be the same old Giles. So, you know, I initially pitched the idea that he come back as Ripper, sort of a young edgy, you know, uh, twenty early 20s guy. And Josh said, that's cool, but the thing, and I, I didn't think of this, but it was a great point. He said, what worries me is then he's a little closer in age to the main characters, and then you have the specter of romance between Giles and these people who he's a father figure to, which is a little creepy and weird. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, great point. So Josh pitched the idea of him coming, <coughs> excuse me, coming back as a kid. <coughs> uh so Giles' mind, but in a 12, 13-year-old body. <coughs> so that's what we did, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Um, <coughs> well, that brings up because there are a few characters, especially in the Angel and Faith uh, miniatures, where you get to introduce uh, Giles' aunts. Yes. Who I love the, uh, very much, but it, when you're working on a book like this, where uh, or books like this, where you have so many characters who have specific actors associated and um, specific rhythms. When you're creating a new character for it, do you envision, like, oh, somebody who might be cast and, well, and work th- that way? Or? Those characters are very interesting because with Angel of Faith, Joss actually contributed a number of ideas he had was going to use for the Ripper TV show that he was going to do with the BBC that never came to fruition. One such idea was these two great aunts of Giles who had natural magical ability like many in his family does, but they used it solely to remain young and beautiful, and he described them as these magic Paris Hiltons. Uh, and on that show, Ripper, they would have been played by Anthony Stewart Head's daughters, uh, so who are actresses. So we got pictures of them, and Rebecca based their appearance on, on uh, those two young ladies. Uh, so in that case, there actually was real human beings who they were somewhat based on. In terms of creating brand new characters, um, I think we generally, you know, I- I've always just generally left it to the artist. When you're working with great artists, you know, you give them sort of a general thing. Uh, with, with, for example, uh, the character of, oh man, I forgot the character's name. The, the, the other slayer from Angel and Faith. That was her name. Oh. Anyway. Not Kennedy. Uh, no, no. I, I know who you're talking yeah. about, and I just reread some of this, too. And I just, well, and I can't remember. I'm getting old, and the Alzheimer's is setting in. Uh, anyway, uh, we, you know, we did talk uh, to back and forth with Joss, and Rebecca did some sketches, character design sketches, and, you know, it's like designing any other character. <laughs> is there one character or another that you that you just love writing that you want to, like, work back in, or you get very excited when you realize that their arc is coming back into the story? Well, one of the characters that I have the most fun writing is Harmony because she's just so flagrantly selfish and self-absorbed that she's so much fun to write. But the very charm of her, like if I had to write a Harmony ongoing series, it would probably get old. But the fact that she only shows up every so often is it makes it a lot of fun because it's a real joy when she comes back in and I can just write this utterly, unrepentantly selfish character. It's so much fun. And then this year, writing one character, you, you also collaborated with Nicholas Brendan. That's right. So how, how did that did you trade off? Or did, was he coming in and saying, I wouldn't talk like that? Or No, he he and I don't live very far from each other, so we would get together and talk, and we could become friends over the course of working. And he actually says that he, unlike some of the other actors, he really is Xander except for the nerdy stuff. Like, Nicky was into different, he was into baseball and other stuff. While Xander's into nerdy stuff, but I've got that side covered, um, so he, he's pretty. But he seems happy with my my take on Xander. Uh, but he generally, you know, sometimes what, what he brings to the table that I think is important is he approaches it almost as an actor. So he tries lines, he says them out loud, which I try to do from time to time. But as not being an actor, I think he gets something different out of it. And so he makes suggestions that I think work great. Like, you know, there was one early on where uh, Dracula was lying about there having just been an orgy because he was trying to make it seem to Xander like he's having all kinds of fun without him. And so Nikki suggested that he have him repeat the word orgy again, like he's really hitting it too hard, you know. Um, so, he, I mean, like I always say, when I work, whether I'm working with Dan Slott or my wife Ruth or Nikki, the best thing is when you have two writers who complement each other, because there's if you've got two writers with the exact same skills, there's no sense in having them being a writing team because you're just duplicating the same stuff. You want people who come together and make a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, and I think that's what we do. Now, do you have any other projects in the pipeline outside of outside of Buffy that you'd like to uh, talk about? Well, uh, Dark House, Dark Horse, will like to talk about. <laughs> uh, Dark Horse is very nice about me letting me talk about stuff for other publishers. Uh, Ruth and I, uh, as many people probably know. Uh, recently completed writing on the first season of Daredevil, the Netflix TV show. Um, we wrote the Ninja Fight episode. Uh, we were there for the whole first season, and that was really cool to see people react to that. Um, Ruth and I also have an original graphic novel coming out from Oni Press called The Lion of Aurora, which is a historical epic similar to Braveheart. It's based on true events, uh, you know, very historical, little-known events, but of tremendous historical significance because they sort of inspired the Protestant Reformation and the in, 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 a, uh, in a real way, the American Revolution. 
Um, and it's a great story about a, a guy who rose up from being a peasant farmer to become a uh, leader of his people and won these amazing... Uh, he was called by Napoleon the greatest military tactician of all time. His name was Joshua Janavelle. And the victories he won, it was like five people against 500 soldiers and he, they would win just because they knew the terrain and the tactics. So that is coming up from Oni Press on August 5th and it's drawn by Jackie Lewis, who's terrific. And we're very excited that it's finally coming out because Ruth's been working on it for a really long time. She researched it really deeply. Oh, great. Um, since you mentioned working on Daredevil, uh, and we know that there's movement going on season two of that, are you, will you be involved in the second season as well? Well, as you may or may not know, Marvel's very big on secrecy. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there is a red laser dot on your yeah. forehead right now, no. and we're not even near the Marvel booth. Uh, I mean, honestly, I can, I can talk about everything we've already done and everyone's already seen and literally that's it so uh, I can't I can't say anything else <laughs> whether you're okay yeah. well then thank you for what you could say sure. great conversation thanks so much thank you really nice guy thank you so much talented writer I I, I was rereading the Buffy uh, season 10 stuff to sit down for this interview and it's just just amazing how much that feels like the show. It just oh, it, yeah. it's fun and I you know and consistent and inconsistent. Love that book, and it has his consistent voice as opposed to previous seasons, which were kind of divvied up. You know, so that's that's really fun. Uh, this next one uh, is definitely one that I was so looking forward to because, I, like I said, I've admired this guy's work. Uh, since the Doctor Who episodes he wrote. I think this is, so far, the first... Do- is this the first Doctor Who writer we've sat down sat down with? Hopefully not the last. Yes, I don't believe we've had one before. Paul Cornell. Yeah. Uh, Paul Cornell, who I believe wrote Family of Blood and uh, Human Nature, the, the two-part episode with David Tennant, which is just one of the most moving uh, uh, episodes. And if I'm wrong, and please twisty. cut that. At, <laughs> please cut it if we cited the wrong episodes. But I, I know I do love Paul Cornell. And Saucer Country, a book he did for Vertigo and I think is reviving uh, elsewhere, uh, was a great book. And uh, just a, a great writer, fun conversation with artist Tony Parker. And together they are creating a book which I recommend. Uh, it's coming out the first week of August, which I'll mention this interview called This Damned Band from Dark Horse. And it is fun uh spinal tap meets devil worship and uh you know i was afraid to compare it to spinal tap but they said no no no, it's it's spinal tap so <laughs> you know very much so um just a really great first issue i can hardly wait for the second and the problem with getting an advanced copy is you have to wait two months for th- for the second issue to come out and uh, so pick it up at the beginning of august then you only have to wait a month it's a really fun book this damn band and uh paul cornell and tony parker there we go we are here at comic-con at the dark horse booth with uh paul cornell and tony parker the co-creators of this damn band new series from dark horse i don't think it actually has come out yet or is it this nope. this week? it's out in august and um August 5th. August 5th. And we're trying to persuade people to um, order, pre-order the first issue because, of course, pre-orders for comics mean everything. Yes. So, let's say it is a, a sort of a glam rock band. Let you, Shall as I? the writer, come up with how to phrase this. Okay. Um, the biggest rock band in the world in 1974 liked to say, in a pretentious British way, we worship the devil, only to discover that, horribly, to their surprise, they're worshipping the devil. It's a Ghostbuster-style horror comedy. It's the, um, Spinal Tap meets The Exorcist. Um, told to camera like The Office. So it's a rock documentary where people are interviewed to camera and then we see footage of what they're doing and concert footage. And So, yeah, it's um, a horror comedy. Great. I, I, I did. I had the Spinal Tap comparison as I was reading it. Yeah. going, okay, I get that. And definitely... Um, Perhaps a time period music that I didn't know as much so, uh, about. So, let's just say, what were your influences in coming up with this concept? Well, um, I always like um, a, a story where um, people who are very good at one thing are intercepted, blindsided by something completely different. And for a bunch of people who have pretensions about that thing to discover that that thing is actually real, that seems delicious to me. And lots of opportunities for comedy out of the gap between what people say and how they behave. And um, Tony has been 
well, he's been doing so much research and has just um, the world of the 70s all the big hats and the fur collars and it, please tell us something about oh it's everything uh, what I try to do when I did it I I stay away from movies about the 70s or movies in the 70s except for the documentaries I've hit as many of them documentaries from 1968 to about 1974 as well as um, actual rock photography so I can see what the people actually look like and avoid um, there's some beautiful movies about that era that were made later on I tried to avoid those altogether so I wanted to make sure that beauty was 1974 beauty clothing was 1974 clothing not what 1995 or, ni- or 2013 or right now thought was beautiful or what would look cool transposed or emerged between the two so it's like you're, you're, you're actively witnessing that era of time and for both of you, I mean, there there are a lot of the members of the band also not just have different personalities, but different styles. So exactly. What was going into the creation of that, and how did you assign who was? He gave me of, he gave me some amazing notes. So it wasn't like I want him to look like this, like really super thin and super scary, and he's got um, a sash, no shirt, and tattoos. For I'm like, okay, let's have fun with this. The tattoos aren't hipster tattoos or modern tattoos are like ooh this would be a really cool design it's what tattoos did badasses have in 1972 or 71 so we've had it for a couple or 68 so we'd have it for a couple years already or if like they had leather pants they had old like crinkly leather pants not like 1990s or 2010 leather pants and there's um, always a member a member of the band any band who isn't quite with the um, design of the rest of the band and um, Tony has given our bassist this wonderful John Entwistle buttoned-up suit, which just suits his character, just comes out of, of his character, and Tony immediately intuited that into him being a little detached from the others. Yeah. You know, you know when, when the guys did Spinal Tap, they discovered there was almost like no story they could make out written too outrageous that hadn't actually happened to somebody. Oh, yeah. So, aside from the actual devil showing up, was there anything that you were trying to come and go, no, that actually has happened, or say, uh, well, actually we do draw upon uh, some occult stuff from um, from bands themselves. When Bowie um, uh, has the lyric about don't look at the floor, I drew something awful on it, he says that's something he really did, and we have something awful drawn on the floor at one point. Um, we do we do reference quite a lot of classic rock stories um, typically to do a different take on them or to um, satirise them um, having the presence of real black magic in this does change everything and um, it makes uh, the stakes just too too high for the protagonist the protagonists thought they were playing for vastly different stakes to what they actually are and in your artwork in particular there's definitely a Uh, That was because um, for that sequence, we we wanted to refer to a local artist, and so since the story took place in Japan, we brought local manga artists in. So that first, uh, so I had I've never drawn manga before, so I'm doing a full manga sequence in there to show like, okay, they transcribe over, here's where they pull away from it. So, like the demons, is that what the actual demons look like, or was that just the reference? Like, I saw a demon. Okay, well, um, I draw this up. I'll draw one of my versions of demon in there because. as well as film sequences in inverted commas um, there are sequences where it's a drugs trip that the band have recounted to the um, documentary makers and so they've had an artist draw that for the documentary which is what why Tony Tony's called upon to do um, that for uh, Japanese artists for French artists so later in the um, series he's got um, very Tintin art style for certain sequences which I've never drawn before as well no, very flexible I mean very versatile I love a challenge so it's, it wasn't just like, um, oh, okay, I changed the line on it. On it, it's what kind of storytelling elements did they use? What were what that art? What were their shot selections? What they use? So I'm really trying to emulate, give it that full feel, like 1972. That artist, that era, that that zeitgeist, that era would would prefer, would use. He's also been very good at um, when um, we're in um, the the camera stuff to only take shots from where there would be cameras, and uh, that's a real limitation. Uh, it's an exciting challenge. So it's, we have two cameras, so it's there. you can zoom in and out. And I've also studied a lot of the documentaries of the area where they did take more extreme camera angles. So zoom and zoom out, and there was more interpretation. Where it wasn't as much of a, um, um, a, st- a stood back camera. So it really allowed that. Thankfully, allowed me some freedom as well. How did the two of you come together on this project? 
Well, it was very simple, actually. I pitched this to Dark Horse. They gave me a range of artists and said, how about these? And Tony's samples just stood out as being exciting and vibrant and just the thing. And it's turned out he's been fabulous for this project. I've been very lucky. So. Well, that I've, I've got a great script to work with, so it's not, okay, i got to hack this out. So I want to do this justice. I want to make sure that this everything is carried through the way it's supposed to and do the worst I'm getting, the characters, the story, everything else give it appropriate justice to what it deserves. We should also mention our, col- our colorist. Oh, the, we absolutely have to. Laverne Kandierski, which I'm harm- slaughtering his name. I apologize, Laverne. But he's done beautiful stuff. You see the covers, that's him. The interiors, he really has a wonderful 70s style to it, so it really helps feed into it, so it really helps you immerse. The su- 70s definitely have a palette, and we've, we've got that palette. Yes. Very cool. So, again, it's August 5th. Um, and the final order cutoff for stores is um, uh, the thir- Monday the 13th. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. But no, it's August 5th, and um, yes, we're uh, very excited to have it out there. We're, we're looking forward to more people seeing it. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Hey, thank, thank you. you for taking the time. We appreciate it. So we thank uh, Paul, Tony, James, Scott, uh, Christus and uh, Marisa, and again, Ob Driver, thank you so much for setting up the Dark Horse interviews. And this is why I go to Comic Con, reminding me to you know I meet all these people and and th- they're making comics and and because comics still matter at Comic Con. Don't let anybody fool you, despite what uh, the media coverage says. That's at the heart of it. And it, it remains so, especially in a year like like this, where I feel like it got very diffused. I think people that weren't there for for comics stayed off the floor. For it was interesting because I think there were some areas that were specifically got de-emphasized. Did you notice one? Tell me, video games. They were in one end. I know, but they they had been in the previous uh, previously they'd been the other end, and they were there was a lot more. Well, here's what then, I would say. Then what you, they had. Did you, were, over, did you get over to the Xbox Lounge? Yeah. I felt that the Xbox Lounge was very heavy. And then when yeah. you realized, and I don't think you got up there, in the Hard Rock, the Lego Dimensions, that was a big... I did not get over That there. was a big thing there. Yeah. And I didn't even, you know... And, and of course, the game that I already know, I mean, Lego Dimensions is going to have my money. Thanks a whole heck of a lot, Lego <laughs> and Warner Brothers. I'll Warner enjoy games. your copy. Uh, no, no, you won't, because I will not let you play with my Doctor Who Legos. Uh, they will stay mine. Uh, I feel like I'm already the Gollum, the Lego Gollum going, yeah. my precious. You, you uh, but I never even got over to, they had a pop-up store for, well, oh, demo no, spot for yeah. Disney Infinity 3. I missed that, too. So I was checking out of the hotel on Monday morning, and I saw a guy next to me with a Disney Infinity bag, and I said, oh, what did they give away? And he said, oh, I was actually working for them. You should have come out and see them. I said, I come in every year. And I was trying to catch, like, if there's anything you don't want to go back with, I can just <laughs> take that bag. He was not having any of it. But maybe at D23, which is coming up. Yeah. I, you know, I don't well, last say. year, last It wasn't last year. The year before last, Jason went, and he got the uh, Sorcerer's Sorcerer Apprentice. Mickey. So uh, we're going for... Um, you know, I don't know what they're going to have it at uh, for D23 for Disney 3.0, I, Infinity 3.0. I know they'll have something, but there was a. I, I did see a lot of game stuff. It just wasn't quite. I, you're right. It wasn't quite as much. But what I felt was, it wasn't quite as much of anything, just because there was. It was all so far apart. I don't know what I missed. I oh, may the, have. I may have missed a lot of things. You mean on the main floor? I, I don't mean just on the main floor. It was out there. It was. Oh, you out, mean it other, was out and about in downtown yeah, yeah. downtown San Diego. Yeah, there was just so much. Uh, you know, I will say the funniest thing for 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 me this year, the moment where I'm just like, I gotta. Oh, the my my sad devotion to this twisted uh, to this old religion uh, was the Damien protesters tried to hand me a a, a pin. For Damien, like I, I think on Friday night, and I took it, but they, they gave it to me face down. Do you know what the pin was? No. So I turned around, and it was it was like a piece of his scalp with the mark of the beast, the six six six. Yeah. And I know, I know, I've studied enough to know that was like a Roman code thing. It's not real. Yeah. Or I don't believe it's real. But I turned that over, saw six six six. I handed it straight back and said. I don't play with shit like this. And, and I was like, I'm just like, what? Okay. I, I, I freely admit it. I'm like, I'm not going to, on a friend, no, I'm not going to mess with it. But, um, yeah. I didn't even realize they were doing a Damien show. 
that they're reviving. They're doing an Omen series. No. Every movie from the 70s will have a series. I would say Jaws, but there already was Jabber Jaws, so that happened. Uh, you know, <laughs> Sure. Plus, Sharknado is bound to be a TV series very, very soon. It starts tonight, tomorrow, the uh, Sharknado, uh, oh, oh, hell no. no. Yeah. Um, there was apparently, I missed, there was a street fight between Sharknado. I think it was Sharknado and the Damien protesters got, in, really? got into a battle on the streets. So, uh, what a... We got to get Nate in next week and just talk about this. So anyway, yeah. once again, if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, write into editor at fanboyplanet.com and please check in on the site. We got so much stuff to show you. As they said in Hell, Hellblazer, Hellraiser, we have such sites to show you. Uh, so, okay, I guess I do play with this S. Uh, so anyway, I'm Derek McCaw, editor-in-chief of fanboyplanet.com. And I'm Rick Brett Snyder reminding you to use your powers only for good. And thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com. The power of brains compels you! Yeah. Which is still my favorite. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so remember to yeah, I'll pimp. pimp the... Uh, Here, I'm going to... Listen up. <laughs> what are you doing? I was waiting for you to... Okay, sorry. <laughs> I had a Kirby pose. It's like that. If only my fingers were squared off. What's that <laughs> film with a kid standing in the field while the planes go overhead? The Empire of the Sun? Empire of the Sun. <laughs> I'm like, Thank you. Out, out not the-, the last time I've been compared to, to Christian Bale. <laughs> I mean, not the first time I've been... Uh, never mind. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I approve this outtake. <laughs> Listen up, fanboy. It's the Fanboy Planet Podcast, and here he is, the ever-comical Derek. Oh, I just remembered one other person in this, which is awkward. But uh, anyway, um, (laughs) I'm sorry. We have to do one little cut there. I apologize. Anyway, uh Where am I in my spiel? Ah, yes. 